I've, I've messed up, I, I didn't treat you right, that they are, they're not going to run and just say, oh, that's it, you're not my dad anymore, you're not my mom anymore. Uh, no, they're, you know, the knowledge that they are going to receive us and give us a hug and say, it's okay, daddy, it's okay, mommy, uh, is a great comfort for us to do that again and again and again. Um, likewise, as kids, sometimes we, we disobey our parents and we sin against our parents and knowing that they are going to still be there for us, still love us, still be on our side, um, encourages us to, to fess up to what we've done. We know this in our marriages, um, even when we, we sin and, and, we, and it's really hard and we know we've hurt our spouse. Um, the prior knowledge, this prior experiences of them um, forgiving us and, and continuing to welcome, welcome us in and be committed to us motivates us to confess and repent of our sin. Similarly in church and in other relationships, uh, having an atmosphere of grace and long-suffering and commitment to one another encourages us to confess and repent of our sin to one another. And Paul sums up this principle really well in Romans 2, uh, and, he, and he applies it to our relationship with God as well. Uh, he shows that this same principle is at work in, in our relationship with God. So he says, he says this, Romans 2, 4, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is meant, there's a purpose for it, is meant to lead you to repentance. So similarly, God's kindness and, and grace and forgiveness is, is meant to motivate us and encourage us and compel us to come to Him um, at all times, but especially when we are in sin. When, when we have rebelled against Him, when we feel like, you know, when we feel like we can't come to Him, when we feel like our sin has cut us off from Him, His kindness is actually meant to encourage us in those times especially to draw near to Him. So last week we considered uh, this a bit on the side of God's kindness and God's kindness in, as, we can, as we were in Hosea and, and, and looked at God's drawing the people of Israel and drawing us to Himself through His uh, tenderness, through His um, pursuit and wooing of us. Today we're going to kind of go on the other side of that and consider our response of confession and repentance. Um, what does that look like? Why is that so important? What does it mean for us to repent? Um, and we're going to look at this because this is a central theme uh, in the book of Joel. Uh, the, repentance plays a, a pivotal role in the book of Joel. Okay, so we're in Joel. There's three chapters. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we are going to kind of go through it in order, reading um, portions. So in chapter 1, we start off with God's, with the description of God's judgment on the people of Israel and a judgment particularly in the form of a devastating locust invasion. So starting at verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming uh, locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. 
Jump down a few, few verses to verse 8. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Now, it's hard for us to grasp the magnitude of a locust invasion, right? Because we don't really have them here. Um, but perhaps you've seen videos of these. Um, they're insane. There's one, they're one of those just events of nature that is just hard to map, wrap your minds around. Um, and, and they are completely devastating, or they can be, uh, if, especially in a region where um, people are dependent on the crops uh, for their livelihood and for their sustenance. Uh, National Geographic paints a, a picture of this for us. Um, an, an article I found says, a desert locust swarm can be 460 square miles in size and pack between 40 and 80 million locusts into left, less than half a square mile. Each locust can eat its weight in plants each day, so a swarm of such size would eat 423 million pounds of plants every day. Then this is the most incredible part that, that I'm having a hard time grasping. Like the individual animals within them, locust swarms are typically in motion and can cover vast distances. In 1954, a swarm flew from northwest Africa to Great Britain. In 1988, another made the lengthy trek from West Africa to the Caribbean. I don't, I, I don't know. Don't know how that happens. So the people of Israel are... Um, are seeing one of these swarms destroy their, their livelihood, their sustenance. Uh, but the point that Joel is making here is not just what is happening, but why. Uh, part of his role as a prophet to, is, in, is to interpret why this devastating thing is happening for the people of Israel. And the point is that this is coming, this isn't just happening, but it's coming from the hand of the Lord. God is leveraging all of the natural elements. There's also a, a fire going on, we see, and a drought. He's leveraging all of these natural elements uh, as a consequence for his people rejecting him. And then it gets worse. As, as bad as chapter 1 is, you get to chapter 2, and God warns of either even greater judgment to come if they don't repent. So let me just read a few verses here. Uh, so the locust invasion has, has happened or is currently happening and then chapter 2 kind of looks forward to uh, an even greater judgment. Verse 1 says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all of the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Um, now, this brings up something that we have to consider a little bit, at least in the book of Joel, is that there are some aspects of the book of Joel that are difficult to interpret. Um, and these difficulties uh, center around two related issues. First, what is literal and what is figurative? And then secondly, what is near-term? What is going to happen 
very near in, in the life of Israel, and what is far term? What is, what is spoken of way off in the distance? And we're not going to go into this too much, but I'll just say that chapter 2 here uh, is taken a few different ways. Some see this as a continuation of the locust invasion in figurative language. Um, it speaks of the Garden of Eden before this army, and that could be referring to locusts, comes, and then after it, it's a, it's a wasteland. Um, so this could be a figurative way to just continue the locust invasion. But others think this is now speaking of a, an actual human army. Likewise, some see elements here, especially in verse 10, there's some cosmic language about the stars and the heavens and all of this. So some see this as referring to way off in the distance, to the end times, God's final judgment. But others see this simply as symbolic, figurative language for um, God's visible in-time judgment of the people of Israel in this time. But either way, the point remains the same. This is judgment coming from the hand of God. If the people do not repent, God's judgment is coming down on them. And again, part of the role of a prophet is to interpret events in, their, in the life of, of God's people uh, to, to explain why they are happening. And these particular things, uh, God had said back in Deuteronomy, would happen if, if his people forsake him. The land would be devastated, there would be pestilence that would come on the land and, and destroy their crops, and they would be defeated by their enemies. So these are exactly the kinds of things that God had warned would happen if his people rejected them. And then we see them here either happening or warning, that they're receiving the warning that they could happen. God will not, st will not stand idly by as his people forsake him. Um, as the one who created them, the one who rescued them out of Egypt, as the one who uh, has come to them and, and dwelt among them and given them his law and taught them how to live as his people, he would not just stand idly by as they rejected him, as they forsake him. Uh, no, God is, is just. God does not just bypass our sin and rejection of him. And in the Minor Prophets, God's judgment of sin is given a specific name, the Day of the Lord. You might have noticed this already in, in some of the passages, passages we've read, the Day of the Lord. This is a theme in the Minor Prophets, but Joel specifically hones in on it, of this, this Day of the Lord. So just a couple verses about this in 115. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. In chapter 2, verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And then Isaiah makes it very clear what kind of day this is. A few verses in Isaiah 13, wail for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Before we move on, 
we need to feel the weight of this. So yes, God's kindness leads us to repentance. But there's also a role for God's judgments and God's warnings of judgment. His warnings of judgment for those who reject his kindness. So the rest of Romans 2.4, where we are told God's kindness leads us to repentance or is meant to lead you to repentance, warns of presuming on God's kindness, presuming on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. That is, believing that God is in some sense kind and gracious and merciful, but refusing to receive that, refusing to rest in that, refusing to turn and, and be motivated by that to come to him. As Paul will go on to say in Romans, we, we can cling to our cold and impenitent hearts. And we just stay in this position of, of rejecting God, even when we might hear that he is kind, and we kind of believe that in a tacit, tacit, believe that tacitly, but don't let it move us, don't let it change us. And we just stay distant from him. In the Bible, the fear of judgment is not the only or the most powerful motivator, but it is a motivator. We, we can't say that God never uses warnings of judgment and the fear of, of judgment and wrath to motivate us. He does. In the end, God's kindness has very little meaning for those who stubbornly continue in their sin and rebellion and rejection of God. But even in his warnings of judgment, God is drawing his people to himself, right? So here in Joel, right at this moment, God changes his tone and calls his people to turn towards him. God desires to extend mercy to them, to shower them with his steadfast love, if only they would turn. So the two pivotal verses here in Joel are in 2, 12, and 13. I read at the beginning of the service. Hear them again. So this is just after God had warned of this even greater, this great army coming, this, and the day of the Lord. God had given these warnings, and then immediately in verse 12, he says, Yet even now, right at this moment, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for... He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Even now, so even as God has spoken of the judgment to come, even as his people are experiencing the effects of his judgment and are in despair, God invites them even now to return to me with all your heart. You see, God is pleading with them to turn to Him. God desires their repentance, desires them to turn to Him. He's not content that they would stay in their rebellion. He would prefer to bless them, to overwhelm them with His love. Um, and this is true throughout Scripture. Uh, something that I've been reflecting on recently and that I've... Uh, has become more clear to me recently is, in the, is that God's heart of God's heart and his disposition towards on the one hand extending judgment and on the other hand extending mercy are not identical. 
He is just and he will judge sin, and yet he delights in extending mercy. And he goes out of his way, way out of his way, to extend mercy to sinful people. Uh, Lamentations 3.33 reads, For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So uh, he, does, he does not afflict from his heart. So God does afflict us. But it's not what his innermost heart prefers. He would prefer that we turn and find rest in his grace. Jonathan Edwards writes, God has no pleasure in the destruction or calamity of persons or people. He had rather they should turn and continue in peace. He is well pleased if they forsake their evil ways that he may not have occasion to execute his wrath upon them. He is a God that delights in mercy, and judgment is his strange work. In saying judgment is his strange work, this is the idea uh, he gets from Isaiah 28, where uh, judgment is called God's strange work versus his natural work of extending mercy. Um, Dane Ortland, commenting on this idea, says, Left to our own intuitions about God, we will conclude that mercy is his strange work and judgment his natural work. Is that how you tend to think of, of God? That judgment is what he naturally does, but mercy is kind of his, his strange, his unnatural. He'll do it, but there's an asterisk. asterisk. Rewiring our vision of God as we study the scripture, we see that judgment is his strange work and mercy his natural work. And it is this confidence that this is who God is, that He is merciful, even delights in being merciful, that, as Paul says, drives us to repentance, drives us to come to Him. And Joel is making this same point here. He says, return to the Lord your God. But then he gives a reason for that. Why? For He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Uh, this is a quote, as you may recognize, from Exodus 34, where God reveals His character, who He is to Moses. And this is picked up by uh, numerous writers in the Old Testament. This is the, the character of God that we are told to cling to. This is who God is, past, present, and future. And God's people are continually told to hold on to this promise of God's character, of His mercy and grace, especially when we are running away from Him, especially when we feel like we cannot come to Him. It is true that if we continue down this path of, of continual and ultimate rejection, we will meet His heavy hand of judgment. But if we turn, we will immediately find His compassionate heart. So our repentance is motivated by, encouraged by, grounded and rooted in God's character and promises. We, we, just like as our kids know that when they confess their sin, we are going to take them in and give them a hug and say, I still love you, I'm still here for you. And we know that we can come to God at any moment and say, I repent. We can turn to Him from whatever point we are at, and He will receive us and love us and, and take us in.
Now, I want to consider a little bit more what it means to repent. Practically, what does this look like for us? God says through Joel, he gives us a little bit, he gives us something to work with here. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. So, we can say that on the one hand, repentance and, and turning to God is a very, very simple thing, right? It's not, a, it's not a jumping through religious hoops. It's not a getting our act together, getting our, our, our act up to a certain level, and then God will receive us. Uh, the, the rending or tearing of clothes that Joel mentions here uh, was a ritual sign of repentance and, and humility. And it, it could be a good thing if it was connected to a heart that was actually turning. But, but God says, I don't want all of your your rituals and your, your attempts to just show me that you were humble, like actually come to me. Give me your hearts. You don't need to jump through any hoops. You don't need to perform. You don't need to make up for your past by changed efforts. You don't need to atone for your sins. Just turn. God wants our hearts. He wants us to be truly broken heart over our sin. He wants us to despair of finding comfort and hope and salvation in anything else and to turn wholeheartedly to Him. So it's a very simple thing. But on the other hand, it's not an easy thing. It's something that our hearts resist in many ways. Our hearts resist with many excuses and many distractions. Uh, we like to keep control of our lives. We like to cling to our loves, our idols, the things that we give our hearts to. We think that we can split our devotion between God and something else. We can love God and love money, even though he clearly tells us we can't. We can love God and, and whatever it is, and just kind of half-heartedly be devoted to God, but really our hearts are somewhere else. Perhaps we doubt God's goodness. And that keeps us from coming from Him. Will God really take care of me? Will He really give me joy? Will He really be better than whatever it is we think we need? The truth is, rendering our, rendering our garments is much easier than rendering our hearts. That is, simply being like devoted religiously or morally for a little bit of time as a, as a means of getting God off our back, appeasing Him, appeasing our guilty conscience, is a lot easier than actually coming to God with our whole hearts. Like, okay, I'll, I'll commit to reading my Bible a little bit more. I'll go to church. I'll pray until I feel better. If I feel like God, you know, I've done my share and God, God will now get off my back and bless me. No, the multiple times in Scripture that God says He is not pleased with His people's sacrifices and with their fasts and their worship, the very things that God had told them to do, show that we can't, God can't, God's favor can't be bought. God cannot be tricked into blessing us. We must go to Him on His terms and His terms only, and that is by repentance and depending on His mercy. Now, I think this is a message that we particularly need to hear, and I say that because 
We tend to be a church that highlights God's sovereignty, God's ultimately, ultimate um, transcendence over all things, that He is over and above all things, working all things together for His will. And there is a danger in this, like that's all good, that's all biblical. We want to insist on that. But there is a danger in that of downplaying the equally true aspect of his imminence, of him being very near to us, of him responding to us in time and space. And part of what this means is that our repentance is very real and is very necessary. It is something that we must do. We may not know this side of heaven how exactly our actions, including our repentance and faith, respond to God's sovereignty, but we do know that we must turn, that we must repent. And you see this throughout Scripture. Um, in the book of Joel, God, God will go on to say that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So this is a phrase that Paul picks up later in Romans. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we must call. Again, Joel calls on the people. Uh, God, through Joel, says, return to me with all of your heart. You, return, turn to me. Uh, Jesus says things like, seek and you will find. Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All, all of these are invitations, these are commands to, to come to God, to repent. There are wonderful promises that wherever we are, whatever we have done, however we've long we've kept God at a distance, however distant we feel from God, however much we've experienced of His judgment, that at that moment when we hear this, we can turn and call on Him and we will be saved. He will welcome us in. And so we see this all throughout Scripture. We see it in Joel, God's kindness and mercy and invitation. Joel actually points us back to God's revelation in, in Exodus to Moses. But then how does Jesus fit into this? So as a church, of course, we, we insist that, that salvation is found in Jesus and Jesus alone, as Christians have done throughout the centuries. So, so how does Jesus fit into this? Well, the truth that is revealed in the New Testament is that every act of God's mercy is grounded in God's work in Jesus, right? Every time that God extended mercy, all of His mercy, Old Testament and New Testament, before Jesus, during Jesus' life and after Jesus, is established and secured and rooted in Jesus. So Paul makes this clear in Romans 3, where he says, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine, divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So whenever God extended mercy to, to someone or to a people in the Old Testament, He was in that moment committing to this plan in Jesus, right? His passing over sins there, His forbearance and not bringing judgment on them there, was committing Himself to, for Jesus to come and to, to suffer and die in our place. That is the basis of all of God's acts of grace and mercy. 
And so for us, we, we know this, we can look back and know for certain that for the one who has faith in Jesus, all, all of God's justice towards our sin has been, has been done, is done, completely satisfied, and God's disposition towards us, towards those who have turned to Him in faith, is entirely kind and merciful and gracious. And not, not, not because we did our part, not because we forced His hand, and not even because Jesus stepped in and, and convinced His Father against His will to, to, to go with this plan. No, this was God's plan from the beginning of time, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. This is what God was committed to from before time began, to go to great lengths to draw us to Himself. Salvation is of the Lord. This is, this is the gospel. He saves fully and finally all who come to him in true repentance and faith. And yet that's, that's not the end of what Joel has to teach us. The people of Israel respond to God's call for repentance, and then we see God responding to them. So, God's people respond, what does God do? What does it mean for us to repent, to come to God? What, how does God respond to our repentance? Chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for His land and had pity on His people. The Lord answered and said to His people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. So, to those who turn to God, God doesn't just merely pardon them. He doesn't just merely tolerate them. He does not just say, well, I'll leave you alone now. He, and he doesn't just coldly bestow salvation on them and say, okay, you, you have salvation. No, God extends blessings on them. He showers them with good things. He satisfies them. He remove, removes every reason to fear and tells them to rejoice. They have every reason to be glad and rejoice in him. And then as you, as, you, as you go into chapter 3 in, in Joel, you see that not only does God intend to give them good things, but God uh, intends to extend every effort, all of His strength and power, to judge their enemies. Everything that is against them, God will destroy. In chapter 3, God speaks of the judgment that He is going to bring on all of those who have mistreated Israel now that they've repented. And this is fascinating because God was ultimately the one that had brought these other nations to, to judge Israel. 
But now, God judges the judgment. God brings judgment on, on everything that was working against them. He defeats the consequences of their sin. And this helps us understand what God was doing on the cross as well. That on the cross, God was defeating our sin and all of its consequences. All of the judgment that God had that would have come on us, God was defeating, making an all-out war on our sin and its effects. And so the very same God that was roaring in judgment against his people in their rebellion against him now is roaring against every enemy of ours, everything that would destroy us, including our own sin. And this is so helpful to know because we might think that the kindness of God is a sign of his weakness or a sign of his ineptitude. You know, this is ten, tends to be the way we, we might see people at times. If, if they're really kind and gracious and forgiving and patient and long-suffering, we might tend to think that they're also kind of a pushover. But God is nothing like that. The reason why His grace and His mercy is so wonderful is that it is at one and the same time combined with His strength and might and sovereignty. He not only desires to save us, but He can save us. There is nothing that can stand in His, in his way, nothing that can stand against His purposes, nothing that can come between Him and His people. To, to those that come to Him, His love and favor and protection is, is guaranteed. Nothing can thwart it. And so if you step back for a moment and consider first for Israel, consider what God, all of the ways that God led them to repentance. He draws upon every means possible to lead them to himself. His, his judgments and his threats of judgments, his reminding them of his kindness and mercy, his promising to restore them, his promising to take away their judgments. And he's done the same and he is doing the same with us. So for us, the warning of judgment still stands. If we continue in our sin and rebellion and rejection of him, we have no one to blame but ourselves for missing out on his mercy. That still stands. But the assurance and promise of his mercy for all who turn to him is certain. Jesus didn't die for nothing. He died to draw us into God's love. And the blessings of this are ours every day. Every day we can rest. We can rejoice in being in the steadfast love and, and kindness and mercies of God. This is the environment, the, the atmosphere that we live in. Just like a child who, who knows that confessing their sin is, is okay, is good and right, and is worth it because there is an atmosphere or an environment of, of committed, faithful love and forgiveness. We live in that same atmosphere that God has committed himself to us. 
And there was nothing we could do to make him disown us. Let's pray.